North Korea is a nuclear power, but also a mystery, and to most of its neighbours, a menace. The regime of its dictator Kim Jong-un is again flexing its muscles, firing missiles towards the territory of South Korea, a key American ally and home to the biggest US military base on foreign soil. More than 70 years after the formal end of the Korean War, how dangerous could North Korea really become? And what does the supreme leader want from his brinkmanship? I'm Gavin Essler. This is not a drill. In a crowded field of human rights abusers, North Korea is regarded as the world's worst and also the world's most closed society. The Pyongyang regime has few friends, but it does have an estimated 50 nuclear warheads, plus enough material to make as many more. Despite long-standing economic failures, including failure to feed its own population, North Korea is again ratcheting up the tension with the other side of the 38th parallel and America's ally, South Korea. President Kim Jong-un, the third generation of North Korea's dynastic dictators, has turned his back on a long-standing regime policy of eventual Korean reunification and ordered the firing of cruise missiles and artillery shells towards a South Korean island. As usual with North Korea, there are more questions than answers. Why now? What next? And is war really unthinkable? A recent report by North Korea experts Robert Carlin and Siegfried Hecker via the 38 North programme at the International Affairs Think Tank, the Stimson Centre, made headlines this January by warning of that unthinkable risk. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Korea expert Chad O'Carroll on the context behind Kim Jong-un's own approach to securing his regime and with it the family dynasty. But first, a reminder that you can support our work, bringing you the news behind the global headlines by backing us via Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to our weekly episodes early and ad-free, plus links to our podcast merch and early news on extra podcast events. Just search Patreon, this is not a drill, to sign up now. Now I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by Rachel Min Young Lee. For two decades, she was a North Korea analyst for the CIA's Open Source Center and is now with the Stimson Center. Rachel, can we begin with a brief explanation of the situation now? Because things seem to have been ratcheted up quite a bit by the North. In the fall of 2022, we saw the Koreas um, exchanging missile launches, and I think we saw heightened tensions there. Uh, we didn't see as much of that in 2023, but of course, you had um, Kim Jong-un uh, going to Russia, and of course, um, that raised concerns in, in many parts of the world. And late 2023 um, year-end party plenary meeting. In fact, Kim Jong-un gave a long speech and there he basically reaffirmed his hardline policy toward the U.S. and also his commitment to increasing or strengthening cooperation with uh, like-minded countries. And so I think we can gather that um, he's referring to China and Russia. Most notably, he made a fundamental shift in his South Korea policy and unification policy, um, which I think wrapped the headlines um, around the world. Yeah, I saw uh, the 38 North uh, report talking about him saying that there are now two hostile countries and war could break out at any time. 
How do we analyse this then? Could it be just a kind of patriotic distraction to domestic problems he's having? Or is this actually a diplomatic uh, message that he's sending to other people? Everything that North Korea does, um, it's always two-sided. What he says, what North Korea says, what what it does targets both domestic and external audiences. It's basically he's telling the domestic audience, don't even dream about unification. We're not going there, which, of course, marks a huge shift or fundamental shift uh, from his forefathers um, unification policy, um, where the goal was eventual unification with South Korea. Externally. I guess you can say that he sort of completed his cycle of South Korea policy, which is that legally and militarily, um, Kim Jong-un has been building towards this. So on the military front, um, he revised the nuclear law in September 2022, which um, implies that South Korea can be a target of North Korea's nuclear use, if it be. So From Pyongyang's point of view, I think it only made sense that they made this official, the shift in South Korea policy. So I would say that they've done the full circle. Right. I I follow your logic, but the logic of attacking South Korea when there's about 28,000 US troops there and when there will be a response, it seems to anybody outside North Korea to be absolutely crazy. I mean, is there nobody in the inner circle of Kim that would say that to him, or perhaps more politely, or even in the outer circle in Russia and China, people saying, you know, you can't do this. This would be mad. No, no, I agree. And, you know, I don't think that North Korea is going to go out of its way to use nuclear weapons. And, you know, whenever they talk about the use of nuclear weapons, it's always conditional. It's used in a very defensive sense. But I think um, we are looking at an emboldened Kim Jong-un, which is why I think we are in a more precarious situation than before. And I say Kim Jong-un has become emboldened in recent years um, on two fronts. Domestically, when North Korea closed down its borders in January 2022 um, at the outset of COVID, many experts said that North Korea is not going to survive prolonged um, self-isolation. That years, what years of international sanctions were not able to achieve, this will achieve for North Korea. North Korea is going to cave in and it will come back to the negotiating table. It did not happen. Um, despite prolonged international sanctions and the prolonged stalemate of diplomacy with the U.S. since the 2019 Hanoi summit, despite the um, nearly four years of self-imposed self-isolation period where it basically closed down all its borders. Um, it was able to not only manage to keep afloat economically, from what st- uh, North Korea state media have reported, it appears as though North Korea has even made some economic growth, attained some economic growth in 2023. This is not to say that everything they tell you is a fact. So we're looking at an emboldened Kim Jong-un domestically. On the external front, and we've heard about this many times from various experts at different points, the international situation right now could not be better for Kim Jong-un, not only because of the divide between the U.S. and countries like China and Russia, but because of what Kim Jong-un sees as a significantly weakened United States on the global stage. And I think that plays into 
their thinking, strategic thinking. By they, I mean Kim Jong-un and his associates. And I think it took away some lessons also from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what is what has been happening there on that front. Um, I think one lesson that it learned is that Washington will not directly engage another nuclear power. And of course, um, you know, when we talk about bilateral relations within the context of North Korea foreign policy, um, we see the strengthen of uh, strengthening of relations between North Korea and Russia, um, which I think has defied all expectations. I think we're seeing it has really blossomed in ways that we would not have imagined um, even a year ago. Um, and, you know, of course, that's a major um, source of concern. That is very interesting. And do you think it's partly connected to the fact there's an American presidential election, so everything's up in the air? However, if this is miscalculated, during an election year, the president of the United States, whoever he or she happens to be, is not going to want to look weak. And that is going to be a problem, I would suggest, for President Kim if he pushes this too far. That's another good point that you raise. And my biggest concern, you know, and as, as I'm talking about an emboldened Kim Jong-un, you never know what information he's being fed and you never know what an emboldened Kim Jong-un um, is envisioning. And the reason that I wanted to talk about an emboldened Kim Jong-un is because I think it does raise or increase the possibility of miscalculation on North Korea's part. To try to understand what is driving Kim Jong-un's decision-making and to hear something about how all this brinkmanship is affecting people south of the 38th parallel and the peace line between the two Koreas, I'm joined by Chad O'Carroll. He's a Londoner, now based in the South Korean capital Seoul, and the founder of nknews.org. Chad, let's begin with what you make of what's going on in the north, especially the firing of missiles. I mean, uh, you've seen it all before, presumably, or is this different? Well, the, yeah, the firing of missiles is nothing particularly new. The big key difference is the geopolitical context this is happening within and this major pivot away from reunification as the sort of national overarching strategy with South Korea. And within the, the, the weeks that have followed, we've had little clues about what exactly they mean. So, for example, South Koreans officially becoming enemies, regardless of which political party is in power here. And the shutdown of uh, all of North Korea's external facing propaganda towards South Korea that had been sort of uh, pumping out this consistent message of, uh, peace, love, and unity about the future and what that may hold for the Korean nation. Uh, uh, maybe we'll get on to what, how that's going down in South Korea, but what do you think has provoked this change of tone and attitude and, its, and the significance of it? Yeah, so you'll remember the summits which took place under Donald Trump. We had inter-Korean summits, summits between Kim Jong-un and China, um, and of course, the famous one where Donald Trump walked away from Vietnam uh, in February 2019. Kim Jong-un had taken a five-day train journey to get there. Uh, we believe he was deeply embarrassed after that. And in the months following that, the North Koreans told the US multiple times, you've got to give us something new. And it never came from Washington. 
Uh, and that led to a, an initial pivot in December 2019, where Kim Jong-un announced to his people, look, we, we've got to give up on negotiating with the US. They're unreliable partners. Let's not dream that sanctions are going to be lifted. Let's just make the most of what we can do with our own capabilities and all this global pressure. What was interesting is that also came with a big push away from South Korea internally. So South Korean media has been long popular inside North Korea, especially with younger people. So like USBs, DVDs that were smuggled in, Korean dramas um, passed around. Penalties were quite light in uh, the days of Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father. However, in the years since that failed Hanoi summit, the penalties in North Korea have massively increased. And we've seen a lot of new pressure on North Korean citizens to report each other if they're suspected of watching South Korean dramas. There's the death penalty introduced for people that distribute South Korean material. I think the, the key thing is Kim Jong-un realizes what ideological pollution this South Korean material is inside North Korea. And so we've got to this point where, on the one hand, he is promoting unification with these people as, as a national brethren. On the other hand, internally, the security apparatus is clamping down massively on people that consume anything coming from South Korea. Those things don't add up. They're not coherent. So I think that's the key reason. He's had to abandon the unification track in order to solidify repression inside North Korea and try and eliminate the risk of external information coming in, which is kind of his Achilles heel. I was going to say, do we underestimate the degree of political pressure on him in the North? Because we assume he's a kind of supreme leader and what he says goes, but actually he's got to deliver something and he's failed to do it. Yeah, well, he's apologized to the people on a couple of occasions during the pandemic for failing to deliver on things. So I think that is a real concern. Well, during the summits with Trump, we've heard this from Americans involved in the negotiations that he had stakeholders back home in Pyongyang who were deeply against any form of negotiation with the US. Now, he could have just been playing good cop, bad cop. We don't know. But I think there was deep embarrassment after the failure of that outreach. He was left in the lurch by Donald Trump. And I think he's concluded that the best way forward is to double down on systems that his father and grandfather built and isolate. Let's talk a little bit about uh, pressure on Kim Jong-un. I mean, how secure is he? Is it even possible to judge how secure he is as an outsider? Um, yeah, so how secure Kim Jong-un? I'd say on the one hand, uh, very secure. I think at this point, if there was any serious internal movement against him, which would be very hard to build right now within North Korea, I think the Russians and Chinese would be invested to the point of, of providing support to quell that. On the flip side, when you go to North Korea and you're near Kim Jong-un, uh, which I've experienced during some of the media delegations there, you witness firsthand the level of security inside North Korea, which is just mind-blowing to me that, you know, he's painted as a leader in state media that is like, fettered by his citizens and enjoys like massive public support. But yet in practice, when you're attending ceremonies that he's involved with, you go through multiple x-ray machines, like you have all your equipment taken to pieces. The apartments nearby are all emptied. 
There are bars put up in front of windows that could have line of sight. And that to me, I mean, it could just be a precaution, but it may, always makes me wonder, has there been stuff that's taken place inside North Korea we may not know about that has prompted that level of security, which could pose an internal threat? Of course, he's also brought his daughter out uh, for about uh, 14 months now, and she's widely thought to be the official successor. She's just a young teenager. And there's been question marks about his cardiac health. And if that was to happen, I think we'd be in a kind of very unique position where a succession could involve a child. It sounds like a medieval monarchy in Europe, doesn't it? I mean, the succession question, who will who will be there? Uh, am I safe? Is somebody going to come out of the shadows and do me in? It's, uh, it is very medieval. Yeah. And, you know, people forget this, but the Korean peninsula was a land of royal families for, for many, many generations. And I, there were, was lots of intrigue and random deaths and things of that ilk. So in a way, this is a reflection of classic Korean culture through the lens of a modern socialist state. It's quite, quite a unique blend and cocktail, but that's where we're at. A lot of big businesses, when they get to the third generation of ownership, sometimes go off a bit. Is that where we are now with North Korea? In other words, is this, uh, is this even worse than it was in father and grandfather's time? It's worse from the risk perspective, the risk North Korea poses to the outside world. And it's worse from North Korean citizens' perspective. The, it's quite strange to think that now the Kim Jong-il era and early Kim Jong-un era was a time of relative liberalism in North Korea. Um, things, are, things are getting bad and, and are worsening. But from Kim Jong-un's perspective of dying in his bed as a, as a grandfather with a glass of whiskey in his hand, I've always said that North Korea is kind of like the ultimate dictatorship. It's learned from the failure, the fall of socialism in the 19 late 1980s and uh, various other dictators who have perished over the years. And it's, it's learned every time how to mitigate those risks. And I think what we're watching right now is the implementation of lessons learned, uh, even in the last few years, and that is extremely control external information and limit it from coming in. We need to stop North Koreans fleeing the country. Uh, they're building walls, not only at the China-North Korea border, but around Pyongyang itself. It's really crazy to see like how, how far Kim is taking the internal repression at the moment. Uh, but keeping the people in the dark minimizes potential for domestic problems. How is this seen from where you are? Uh, by the people in South Korea. I mean, on one hand, you seem to suggest, well, a few missiles, that's the kind of thing we expect. But actually, this is quite scary, isn't it? Well, the thing here in South Korea is people, uh, unfortunately, don't really care that much about what goes on in North Korea day to day. So they've seen it all before when it comes to missile tests, uh, tensions, all of that kind of thing. The thing about reunification, I don't know like how much people have given it thought. It's probably seen more as an internal North Korean matter right now. And South Korean government is still paying lip service to this concept of unification. I think most, especially younger South Koreans, the polls show that they have really lost interest in unification for a long time. So I don't think there's much care or anxiety about things in that regard. But there has been a lot of attention to what these analysts in Washington, D.C. have said, Bob Carlin and Sig Hecker, about 
uh, North Korea, quote unquote, making a strategic decision to go to war. Um, that had significant coverage in the news media here. Um, there was a lot of comments on news articles in the Korean uh, news ecosystem saying that these American experts are damaging the South Korean economy by saying this. Um, it's reckless of them. Some people saying, you know, do we need to worry? Um, and uh, we've seen a big uptick from our, our corporate clients who are worried about, like, you know, do we need to make evacuation plans for our staff here and figure out what happens so there is there is concern it reminds me a bit of 2017 when donald trump was in power and we had the whole fire and fury era lots of threats going back and forth between the two careers but yeah it remains to be seen whether things do escalate and i'll just end by saying that the the other key difference which we haven't touched on is the current south korean president who has been much more reckless with the rhetoric against North Korea than his predecessor. And that certainly doesn't help the situation, one might argue. That's very, very interesting, because as you say, the American analysts argue this is as dangerous as 1950 and the outbreak of the Korean War. But the implication of what you're saying is, in a way, they're being blamed for being bad for business rather than the North being blamed for ratcheting things up. That's kind of extraordinary from the distance that I'm sitting from you. Yeah. Now, now I, I got the sense that a lot of where they came from with their analysis is, is born out of deep frustration with how this growing cancer of an issue has just been overlooked for years and years and years. And they rightfully argued that the North Koreans are like tooling up in serious ways that could be used for devastating damage in a conflict. But there's a question amongst all the North Korea watchers as to whether the North Koreans actually have an intent to go to war versus are just preparing for a war, which all militaries do by default. From where I'm sitting, the key risk this year is miscalculation, misunderstanding, miscommunication. And I think the risk of that is very serious this year. How far is North Korea profiting from its relationship with the Russian now, selling weapons to the Russians? And in that sense, it has got other, other things that can actually improve somewhat the lot of people in North Korea? Well, this was would have been like unthinkable even just a few years ago that this kind of level of sanctioned military trade could be taking place between a, a UN P5 member and North Korea, a very isolated rogue government. The key thing is we don't yet know how the Russians are compensating North Korea. It doesn't seem to be in uh, agriculture or cereals or fertilizer. There's been talk from U.S. intel that uh, publicly that uh, North Korea is interested in fighter jet acquisition, advanced surface-to-air missiles, things, things of that ilk. So I don't know if it will help the people of North Korea. It's definitely helping Kim Jong-un. Um, the Russians are giving North Korea cloud cover at the UN Security Council each and every time there are missiles. There's been vetoes from the Chinese and Russians when North Korea does things in the US and like-minded nations try and uh, ratchet up sanctions. So it's a, it's a big game changer for North Korea to have Russia so invested in its future, uh, at least for the short term. You know, there's an argument that this could be a very transactional relationship, and I think it may well be. Um, not really a strategic long-term one. It suits both parties for different reasons right now. But it's a big deal. And I, I believe we're looking at uh, the next few years where North Korea is firmly within 
Chinese Russian sort of sphere of uh, power and influence and doesn't need to listen to other countries such as the US or South Korea. Presumably, the United States is quite distracted by the fact that they've got their own succession question too. I mean, Joe Biden obviously wants to stay in the White House. Uh, Donald Trump could be back. What difference does that make? Is Has America taken its eye off the ball a bit? And would Donald Trump returning to the White House be something that the North Koreans would really worry about, Kim Jong-un would really worry about? Yeah, so I think they have taken the ball, the, the eye off the ball for sure with Biden. It's just been uh, kick the can down the road policy. I think if Trump comes back, he may, on the one hand, be interested in reviving the summitry and personal relationship he had with Kim Jong-un. On the other hand, and this is, you know, I, I heard from a, a US official the other day who was speculating that Kim Jong-un may see this on the flip side, which is that there's only a 10-month window before a much more unpredictable president could be leading the US, one which Kim Jong-un would feel much more anxiety about. I think it's a, maybe a good point. Hello, I'm Ross Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in the New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. We've heard today from both analysts that whatever is really going on in Kim's mind and behind the closed borders in North Korea, uncertainty itself and the chance of miscalculations mean the threat has to be taken seriously. I asked Rachel Myung Lee what might be done to prevent a conflict. In terms of American policy, because it's really, I suppose, the Americans that would be the most obvious people to get involved in this, is there anything that can be done, whoever the next president is? I mean, Donald Trump tried to at least uh, address the issue and it failed. Uh, Joe Biden seems not to have been particularly interested in it. Is there anything that we as outsiders and particularly the United States can do about this? Oh, that's a difficult question because this is a question that we've been grappling with for the past few decades, right? With seemingly no right answers. I think a great starting point would be to show more interest in North Korea. You know, um, we often refer to Biden's North Korea policy as um, as another version of Obama's uh, strategic patience. You know, the, the, when you talk to the U.S. government, you know, they'll tell you, well, you know, we have expressed our interest, you know, time and again, that we can we are open to meeting with the North Koreans anytime, any place. But from Pyongyang's perspective, you know, that really doesn't mean much. Um, we like to talk about denuclearization, and um, I do think that that should be the ultimate policy goal. That said, I do think that we need to start somewhere. This is very unfortunate because we've come at a point where we're even having to talk about this. But, you know, North Korea, it's, it seems very clear to me that North Korea is shooting for arms control, which, of course, then sets off a whole nother 
chain of events that um, would would have huge implications for non-proliferation. I think the more realistic option going forward would be by starting with a discussion on nuclear uh, risk reduction measures, but ensuring at the same time that those don't become the um, the end goal. The end goal has to be denuclearization. Rachel, thank you very much for your insights and your qualified optimism. I'm <laughs> hoping to share it. Thank you. Thank you so much. One of the things Westerners tend to forget when dealing with closed societies like North Korea is that they have their own politics too. Leaders may seem all-powerful, but they have domestic constituencies, including the armed forces, to keep in mind. At a major North Korean meeting in December 2023, President Kim made the policy shift we've been discussing absolutely clear. He said, quote, that North-South relations have been completely fixed into relations between two states hostile to each other and the relations between two belligerent states, not the consanguineous or homogenous ones anymore. As the recent Stimson Centre report put it when considering the implications of that policy shift, the evidence of the past year opens the real possibility that the situation may have reached the point that we must seriously consider a worst case, that Pyongyang could be planning to move in ways that completely defy our calculations. Another war on the Korean peninsula, in other words, is unspeakable. Unfortunately, it is not unthinkable. This is not a drill. I'm Gavin Esler. Thank you for listening. This is Not A Drill was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parrott, and social media by Jess Hartman. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production. <laughs>